Let me pray and then we'll get started here. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, Peter's life and his testimony and these words the Holy Spirit has written here for us. We ask you to open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your word and that the word would be accurately and faithfully proclaimed today. Give us ears to hear that we would not, they would not just go in and out, but we'd be doers of the word as well. So may we understand these truths, may we apply these truths, and may they help us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. How many of you have heard of a man named Louis Zamperini? You have? Oh, a couple. Uh, a couple years ago I read uh, a book by him, and there's been a couple movies by, by about him. He's the subject of two biographical movies. Um, uh, to, in 20, the year 2014, they did a movie called Unbroken, and then in 2015, they, uh, somebody produced a movie called Captured by Grace. I'll give you a little brief, brief biography of him. He enlisted in the United States Army Air Corps in 1941, and if you know your history, well, that's World War II time. And so in 1943, uh, he was uh, flying in a, in a bomber, and they were on a search and rescue mission, and the bomber had some uh, difficulties and ended up crashing into the Pacific Ocean, and they were... Uh, like southwest of Hawaii somewhere. So they're out there in the Pacific Ocean, about 850 miles or about 1,300 kilometers south of Hawaii. And as a result of the crashing in the Pacific Ocean, most of the men on board died. Eight out of the 11 died. Three survivors. Uh, all they had were, were two life rafts. That, that's what they looked like. Uh, they didn't have much food in these life rafts, no water. Uh, so they ended up subsisting on rainwater. They caught some rainwater to drink and able to eat uh, some small fish, and they ate them raw. And then they were able to catch some birds that landed on their life raft. So uh, from my understanding is they caught two albatrosses, which they ate, and then they used uh, pieces of those albatrosses to to end up catching some fish. And one of the problems they had is they constantly had to fend off sharks who were trying to eat them uh, during this time. And then they also had to, the concern of storms during this time as they were aimlessly drifting in the Pacific Ocean. Uh, they were almost capsized by at least one storm during that time. And believe it or not, they lasted 47 days aimlessly drifting in a life raft. 47 days. Zamperini was eventually captured by the Japanese Navy and taken to a Japanese concentration camp, and he was held in captivity during that time, severely beaten, tortured, mistreated until the end of the war in 1945. And after returning home, he had continuing nightmares, and he, he really struggled uh, coming back from, from that, coming back home, and uh, one of the things he, he had nightmares about was strangling his former captors. He, uh, he, to deal with that, he ended up getting drunk during that time period, trying to forget his experiences as a prisoner of war. Uh, he did get married, and I learned that uh, his wife, Cynthia, attended uh, one of the 
crusades that was led by Billy Graham, and she ended up becoming a born-again Christian. And then in 1949, as a result of his, uh, the encouragement from his wife, uh, he was also eventually uh, encouraged, and, and, and his, his friends, Christian friends encouraged him. And so Zamperini reluctantly agreed to attend uh, a crusade, and, and as a result of the preaching of God's Word, he was, and it was reminded him of his prayers during his time there on the life raft and also during his imprisonment in the Japanese concentration camp. And Zamperini did recommit his life to Christ. And following that, he, he ended up forgiving his captors. Instead of having nightmares about strangling them, he forgave them and, and God relieved him of his nightmares and his nightmares ceased. What made the difference for Louis Zamperini? Here's a guy who was aimlessly drifting, struggling in so many ways. So in, it, what, what made the difference? Well, instead of just aimlessly drifting in life, Louis Zamperini found a living hope, and he had something to fix his life on, something to rest in, and it was God. Zamperini, by the way, ended up becoming an evangelist. He had a living hope, and he, he had a fixed hope on God. Well, praise God, Peter's hope here in, in, in the book of 1 Peter was a living hope. It was living because it was grounded, and, and, and we read in the first 12 verses, it was grounded particularly in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was living because Christ was alive. Peter spoke of the hope of a real heaven. And for his readers who were, who were being persecuted, this message couldn't have come at a better time. Because you see the spiritual exiles that you read in verse 1 of 1 Peter chapter 1 had come to a faith in Christ that believed his return was very near. See, even people in the first century believed that Christ was coming back and it was soon. But, of course, the, the time had come, and a lot of time, it, water had gone under the bridge, so to speak, and a lot of time had passed, and so those early Christians were feeling like Zamperini in a life draft, just kind of aimlessly drifting, time going on and on and on, and hope was dying out. There was no hope in sight. They couldn't, couldn't see a light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. And So Peter saw hope, though, and he's telling them, that their future goal is real. There is a light at the end of the tunnel, and hope is alive. And so that by the time Peter finished verse 12, everybody heard of this great salvation that was secure. Now in these next verses, after Peter encouraged them, Peter now moves on in these next verses, starting in verse 13 here. He's setting out to make them ready to live obedient lives for Jesus Christ. The reason I say that, because if you, if you look at verse 13, the very first word in my Bible is the word therefore. Whatever you see a therefore in your Bible, you ought to be asking the question, what is it therefore? What is it therefore? Well, it's, it's a transition from those first 12 verses. And, and Peter's, he wants us to live obedient lives for Jesus Christ. That word moves the reader from, 
from the, the statements, these declarative statements about a great and secure salvation. Now it's moving into the application stage. Based on a secure salvation, this great salvation, what do we do now? What do we do now? Well, Peter has a command for us in verse 13. Here's the command. He says, set your hope. Let's read this together. 1 Peter 1, verse 13 says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Did you notice the passage starts with hope in verse 13? And in verse 21, it ends with hope. Hope is a key word here. And Peter commands us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to set our hope on something that is fixed so that we don't aimlessly just drift like in a life raft. So what's going on here? Well, Peter's exhorting his readers here to a very decisive kind of action. It's a required act of the will. This is not just merely an emotional feeling. See, God's commanding all Christians to live expectantly here with a living hope because they have an inheritance that's reserved in heaven. It's going to be revealed in the last times. Well, basically, hope is an attitude here. It's an attitude towards something in the future, though. See, hope anticipates what God is going to do as He's promised you in the Scriptures. So let me ask you, are you really trusting in God? Do you believe that God is going to do what He has promised in the Bible? Do you believe God is that kind of a God? When He says something, that He does it. If you don't believe that, then you can't set your hope on something in the future. So how are we to hope? Well, Peter elaborates on that. See, the Bible says, set your hope fully. Fully is how you're supposed to do it. Fully just means you're to do it completely. To do it without reservation, unreservedly. In other words, Christians are not to hope half-heartedly or indecisively. It's that kind of that, well, I hope so kind of a hope. No, that, that is not what Peter's talking about here. 
This is an utter assurance without any doubt concerning God's promises because you know who God is. See, my friend, you have an obligation to live in view of Christ's second coming. You're obligated to do that. This is not optional. It's imperative in the Greek. See, are you looking forward to the day when Christ will return for His people? And then He says, when I come, I will reward and I will glorify my people. So here's a proposition for you to think about today, which comes from this text. That God wants you to live for the future, anticipating the completion of your salvation at Christ's second coming. See, this is what God wants you to do, my friends. See, He doesn't want you to have your best life now. He wants you to have your best life to come in the future. It's coming. And that ought to help us as, as persecuted people help us. It gives us something to look forward to. So how do we go about maintaining hope? This is hard. Well, more specifically, let me ask you, how do we maintain hope while we are exiles? You're living in a foreign world. This world is not your home. If you're a Christian, it's not your home. So how do we go about living as exiles in a foreign world? Well, Peter tells us how. Notice, first of all, he's got two participles here in verse 13. It tells us, number one, prepare your mind for action. Verse 13, Peter's saying, how do I set my hope? How do I rest in God? How do I fix onto something that is going to be immovable well you have to prepare your mind for action that's how it starts the word prepare literally means to gird up some of your bibles may actually use that phrase gird up it it can refer to a tightening of the belt a cinching of the rope around your waist or tying something down in preparation for action some of you have horses could be on an, in an un, unwise thing to just let a horse wander around without being tied up to something, right? You never know what that horse does with its own mind. It can do do various things. Uh, sometimes you might tie something down if we know a storm's coming, you know, a tent or whatever it might be. You're preparing for an action. Well, in ancient times, this very concept referred to the gathering up of one's robe. Like, I put a picture on the screen here for you. So if a person, for example who was wearing a long robe, wanted to quickly uh, move, easily move, he would pull the corners of his, his robe up through his belt. Any of you ever tried to run in a long dress or a long robe? You try to, that would be very, very difficult. And so Peter metaphorically applies that very process to his mind, to your mind. So he's urging believers to if you will, pull in all the loose ends of their lives. <laughs> Get ready for action. In other words, discipline your thoughts. Live according to biblical priorities. Untie yourself from the world's sinful hindrances and then live in a godly way. That's what Peter's exhorting us to do. Roman soldiers used to do this. They would gird up their, their robes when they would prepare for a battle, they wouldn't run out into, into battle with long robes on. 
Roman soldiers knew that that was not the best way to fight. And so before heading into battle, he'd tie up his robes so those loose ends wouldn't hinder his combat effectiveness. You don't want to be tripping over your clothes when you got somebody running at you with spears and swords. That doesn't make for a very effective battle. And so Peter's using that imagery here to say, hey, prepare your mind for action. And so when the Roman soldier would gird up his robe, it indicated that he was serious about what he was doing. He's preparing for a life and death situation of combat. Well, Peter's saying we need to recognize we're in a spiritual battle. This is a spiritual battle for your soul. So Peter's saying that, that believers must take the same approach to living the Christian life. Deal with those loose ends. Be effective in this battle. Well, Peter gives us another participle there in verse 13 to help us to know how to maintain this hope. How do we set our hope? Well, he says, be sober-minded. Be sober-minded there in verse 13. This word literally means to not be intoxicated. Uh, which is, by the way, just means uh, you don't lose control of your thoughts and your actions <laughs> like a drunk person does. Somebody who's totally intoxicated is losing control of their thoughts and their actions, and so they do stupid things. They say stupid things. And so metaphorically, it means to not lose spiritual control. It means having victory over the three great enemies the Bible talks about being your sin nature, the world, and Satan. Well, you say, well, how, how can we have victory over our enemies? How can we be sober-minded? Well, obedience to this command is only going to come as the Holy Spirit works through God's Word in your life. So be sober-minded. In number three, Peter says in verses 14 and 15, pursue holy living. How are you going to maintain hope? How are you going to live as an exile in a foreign land, in a foreign world? You have to pursue holy living. Pursue holy living. Verse 14, he says, well, first of all, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That's that's the negative side of things. Put that off in its place. Put on holy living. God's called you to be holy, it says. So believers living in anticipation of Christ's return and also considering its full significance are going to be motivated then to live in holiness. But true holiness has the negative aspect there. Notice it is experienced when believers are not being conformed to their passions. The way Paul put it in Romans 12 is don't, don't allow the world to press you into its mold. Don't allow the world to do that. It's going to do that through all sorts of things, through the media, through books, through the Internet, so forth. Don't allow that to happen. So true holiness has this negative aspect, and it's experienced when believers are not being conformed to their passions. Conformed, by the way, just means to be shaped, to be fashioned after. And so the passions here include sinful desires and thoughts, would include evil longings, it would include 
uncontrolled appetites and sensual impulses. So for believers, such former passions were in ignorance. In other words, you didn't know better, right? You didn't have the uh, heart that followed after God before you became a believer. So you did it in ignorance, he said. So before they were saved, they didn't know any better. You didn't know any better before you were saved. And so the good news is regeneration of their heart creates a new life. You become a new creature. So both the desire and the power then to live a holy, godly life. God transforms you. So you know what that what that is, how to do that. Then Peter presents the positive standard of holiness. He didn't just say, don't do this, put this off. He says, put something on in its place. The standard of holiness, which comes from God himself, because God is holy. And so we can't be perfect. We can't be exactly like God in this way. But it certainly is a worthy goal for us to aim for. So what's Peter talking about? What does holy living look like according to Peter? Well, if you read the whole book, let me encourage you to read the whole book of 1 Peter in one sitting. And when you do that, you're going to see some various things. Let me just bring out four things Peter's going to elaborate on holy living. Uh, we, We unfortunately have various wrong ideas of what that looks like. Here's God's idea of holy living according to 1 Peter. For example, he talks about a sincere love for others. Submission to unjust leaders. A willingness to suffer and service to God's new family. Those are all things there in the text, in 1 Peter. Peter's going to elaborate on that holy living. We'll we'll be looking at that in, in the weeks to come. So let me ask you this, my friend. God has just commanded us to set our hope on something that's fixed, immovable, rock-solid, which is Him and His promises. We're, we're to look for, to anticipate a glorious future. And so this command to set our hope is, it's not easy, it's hard. That's not easy. And so God gives us some motivations here in this passage to help us to want to, to even attempt to try to do this, So let's look at the motivations that are in this text. Number one, verse 16 tells us the first motivation is God's holy character. Why should I want to set my hope? Why would I want to care about that? Well, notice verse 16 says, Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, if you have a cross-reference in your Bible, you'll notice... Peter's actually quoting from the book of Leviticus, which key word in Leviticus is holy or holiness. It's the key to the whole book of Leviticus. Don't get distracted by all the, the various laws that, and sacrifices and so forth there. God's teaching holiness in the book of Leviticus. And so Peter motivates us toward a life of holiness here by quoting from Leviticus. And in doing so, he selected a very old text of Scripture in which God commanded his people Israel to be separated from the world. That, that's what holiness means, by the way. To be holy means you're distinct, you're separate from God's creation. 
You're unique. So when God says He's holy, He's unique. There's nobody else like God. He's unique and distinct. And so God has called us to be distinct. And so His family was to act differently from all the other nations of the world. Israel was to be a light to the nations. To be distinct. After all, they were to be God's people. They were to be possessed with God's very character. They were to be drawn to God through them. And so as His children, then we should want to grow up to be like our Father. That's what children are supposed to do. (laughs) And so Christians ought to be motivated in holiness by the desire to reflect God's character. That's what Christians are supposed to do. You're to reflect God. That's what it means to glorify God. Let me ask you, does God's character motivate you? Do you care about God's character? Is that a motivation for your hope? Well, God gives us something else here, another motivation, number two. It's His impartial judgment. God's judgment is impartial, and He mentions in verse 17 another motivation when He says, If you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Notice God's judgment is impartial. Well, if God's character in verse 16 is not enough to motivate you, well then perhaps His judgment will help motivate you. See, each Christian needs to be careful how they live because they have a Father. Each Christian has a Father who's absolutely impartial in His judgments. He he doesn't treat His children differently like human fathers. As my children know, we have a tendency to not always get it right. We often get it wrong. God never gets it wrong. And so this truth ought to protect us against presumptuous sins. Sometimes there's this mistaken, unbiblical theology out there that I can just go and do what I want because God is gracious and He's just going to forgive me anyway. That's presumptuous sin. So let me put it this way to you. Whenever we begin to think that way, that, that I can just sin and I can get away with my sin because... God is going to forgive me. My friend, you are on very dangerous ground. That is not where you want to be. Paul talks about that in places like Romans chapter 6. You need to read that passage. That is very dangerous ground because God is impartial in His judgment. So the idea of having God as a father leads Peter here to a holy life. See, this is, this is a truth that ought to change us to, to not just do whatever we want, but instead to want to please Him. You say, why? Well, because God's impartial. So instead of presumptuous sin here, Peter motivates us to live our days in fear. Did you notice that? Fear is mentioned in verse 17. Why? Because of His impending and impartial judgment. It's coming. You're not going to get away with Your sin. Number three, Peter spends more time on this one, verses 18 through 21. And the third motivation has to do with Christ's precious sacrifice. 
So Peter talks about what did Christ actually do in giving his life as a ransom. He paid the penalty for sin, which we could have never done on our own. So what did Christ do? It says he ransomed in my Bible, or the idea is, some of your Bibles might say he redeemed. Well, what, what does that mean to be redeemed? What is redemption? Redemption is a very key term that describes one of the essential features of salvation. It deals with the cost of salvation. And it also deals with the means by which God received payment. See, Christ didn't die to, to give a payment to Satan, like some people I've heard talk about. He didn't need to pay off Satan. God needed to be paid off, so to speak. The penalty dealt with God. Now, why is this important? Because all people are helpless slaves to sin. That's the way you're born. You come into this world as a slave to sin, and, and as a result of that, you're condemned by God's law. And if you're not forgiven, and if you're not reconciled to God, uh, then you're in big trouble, of course. You're eternally condemned if, if nothing changes. And so he has to purchase you back from that condition. You have to be ransomed from that condition. And only then can he release that kind of a person from sin's bondage and curse. The word ransomed or redeemed means to purchase release by paying a ransom. The idea also means to deliver by the payment of a price. That's what Jesus did. So let's elaborate on this by asking a few questions of the text, and, and then we'll talk about it, okay? Number one, from what did God redeem believers? You need to understand what you were saved from if you're a believer. Verse 18 answers this question, from what did God redeem believers? Notice verse 18 says, you were redeemed or you were bought back from your futile ways. See, my friend, if you're a Christian then God saved you from a vain, useless, and worthless existence. Praise God! And if you don't believe that, then we need to have a serious talk. Okay? Because uh, the truth is, every unredeemed man or woman is living a futile life. A wasted life. Even the best accomplishments that unbelievers seem to achieve in this life are pointless... Well, at least from eternity's perspective, they're pointless. Jesus made that very clear when he said, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? The rhetorical answer, that's a rhetorical question. The answer is you don't profit anything. It's vain, it's useless, it's worthless. Another question we need to consider is, with what did God redeem believers? See, you were redeemed from a futile, your futile ways, which as an unbeliever you did in ignorance. With what did God redeem believers? Verses 18 and 19 tell us. See, knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. See, redemption's 
price here was not paid with valuable earthly things like gold or silver. (laughs) It's interesting the way Peter describes those things, by the way. He calls those perishable things. The things we consider so precious, oftentimes, or at least a lot of people do anyway, we consider so precious, Peter calls them perishable. No amount of money could redeem a person's soul from the bondage of sin. You could never do a good enough, enough good works or pay enough money. There's nothing you could do. See, it required the most precious thing in the universe to pay the penalty for your sin. You know what that is? The Bible says it is that redemption's price required Jesus' blood. You say, why blood? Well, God used blood as a vivid symbol for sacrificial death. And, and so, of course, death involved the shedding of blood. And it was all that, all that way, by the way, go all the way back to the book of Leviticus, even Exodus. You can go even farther back into the book of Genesis, right? God had, God had to kill some animals in Genesis 3. Their blood needed to be shed to cover Adam and Eve. It's always been that way. And so the blood was not just any blood, but precious because it belonged to Jesus, the Lamb of God. He was the one who was without blemish and without spot. Let me ask you, did Jesus need to die? Did He need to die? And my friend, you you need to understand this, that all sin is a violation of God's holy Law, and as a result, there's a debt that is incurred to us as a result of that. He's the one to whom that price has to be paid. You and I couldn't do that. Only the creditor that can determine the terms of the ransom, you don't get to determine that. So the price was not paid to Satan. In fact, all sin is against God. You don't sin against Satan. And so because we don't sin against Satan and we sin against God, therefore, He's the one who sets the terms of redemption. He's the one who sets the terms for your ransom. So the price that He set and He required was the life of Jesus Christ. You say, why Jesus? Because He's the only perfect person who's ever lived. It required one who was perfect. One who lived the perfect life and therefore could die the perfect sacrifice. A third question is this, by whom did God redeem believers? Verses 20 and 21 answer this. Notice, talks about Jesus here in verse 20, that He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory. So that your faith and hope are in God. Now in this section, Peter more fully describes the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Jesus is unique in many ways. Let me just elaborate on what's in the text. Number one, uh, the first aspect of Christ's uniqueness mentioned here is verse 20, that He was foreknown. Now this truth here shows us that Christ was chosen as Redeemer in eternity past, even before creation, even before Adam and Eve sinned. See, you need to understand that God's totally sovereign here. 
we don't see a God who is reacting to our sin. We, we see a God who is acting. And He's acting ahead of time before we've even sinned. See, God didn't react to the fall of mankind. He predetermined to send His Son as the Savior. The second aspect of Christ's uniqueness mentioned in the text is that he was made manifest. Made manifest. When did he do that? Well, of course, that happened when Christ became a human being. He wasn't always that way. <clears throat> in eternity past, he was, he was spirit. Then, of course, we call this event the incarnation. When Christ became carnate, took on flesh. And the third aspect of Christ's uniqueness is that he was raised from the dead. See, you can't kill God, so God became man so that he could die. That's the beauty of the incarnation. So hopefully why you celebrate Christmas. See, it says he was raised from the dead. Who did that? God resurrected Jesus. And this is important because <laughs> you and I have no hope. Nothing to set our hope on if he's still in the grave. See, the resurrection is proof that Jesus was the sacrifice for your sin. His resurrection is the proof that penalty was paid and God accepted the payment for your sin. And so that redemptive work was actually accomplished through Christ's resurrection and death. Well, there's a fourth aspect of Christ's uniqueness. Notice the text says that God gave him glory. Now that phrase points to the ascension of Jesus Christ. Read Acts chapter 1. Read about the ascension. And so when Christ returned to heaven, uh, we, the Bible mentions that he now enjoys uh, being at the Father's right hand. And all the glory of heaven and the privileges uh, they go with with that. So he is now with the Father, and he will be there for all eternity. So praise God for Christ's uniqueness. But I got a fourth and last question to consider. For what did God redeem believers? If you're a Christian, you need to add, you need to know this answer. Why did God redeem you? Why did He ransom you? Not because you're awesome. <laughs> We, 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 we're too man-centered often in our theology. That's not why God did it. Notice the partial answers mentioned right there in the text. The end of verse 20. It's for your sake. That's the partial answer. You, you say, well, whose sake? Who, who is that talking about? For your sake. Well, that's the redeemed, the ransomed ones. Now, that's an amazing phrase there in verse 21 because the phrase... Well, there's another amazing phrase I want to highlight. Because notice it says, through Him. Yes, it is for your sake, but it is through Him. Indicating it's more than just the way to salvation, but it's also the power to believe the gospel. See, you and I can't believe the gospel without the power to do so. And now the end of verse 21 reveals the ultimate blessing of redemption. Notice it says, so that your faith and hope are in God. You have something that's fixed, something to rest your hope in. It's totally set, so that you're not just drifting around the ocean of life in a raft, but you're on solid ground. 
See, faith enables believers to trust God even now. Hope enables belief in future grace. And what does that mean, future grace? Well, believers have hope that one day God is going to raise them from the grave. One day believers believe with all of their heart that God's going to welcome them to, to their real home, which is heaven, where we get to live with Jesus Christ forever. We are exiles, just as these people are. People, Peter's readers were exiles in a foreign land. And so we are, spiritually speaking, exiles. But believers have a hope that one day we get to go home. One day we get to be with God. And we'll no longer be exiles. We'll no longer be persecuted. So my friend, let me, let me just cause you to think about the motivations here. Be motivated by God's character. Be motivated by God's judgment. Be motivated by Christ's sacrifice. Why? What's the point of those motivations? So that you would have your hope. As verse 21 ends, so that your faith and your hope would be set, would be resting, and would be fixed on something in the future that is immovable, that is secure, that would give you comfort and encouragement even now. God, enable us to set our hope on Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for this sure foundation. Thank You for giving us something that is fixed and set, immovable, something that we can rest in. May we understand this kind of of hope. Open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from Your Word today. May we apply this and, and go from here understanding this command and that by the power of the Holy Spirit we would be this kind of a people and that the world around us, those who have no hope, would see hope in Christ. Enable us to do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.